Let me start with a brief announcement concerning um, a group of ladies that has uh, kind of had this idea to uh, redecorate the Mariah House. Uh, if you know about the Mariah House, it's for it's for abused women. It's a, it's a wonderful ministry that we've been supporting for years, and so they're trying to redecorate the rooms, of course, that, that these ladies live in. Um, it's it's kind of summarized under the title Divine Design. Uh, if you can be involved in something like that, uh, it, it involves uh, meeting these ladies uh, and finding out their desires and then redecorating the rooms. Uh, you'll need to see Diane Daniel, who is in the back of the, uh, the building there, or the room, and got a little table set up uh, over there for you to, for more information. So I hope you'll take a look at that. Also want to say uh, just hello to the Paradas. That, you know, I'm not used to people joining the church and then coming to church on Wednesday night. I mean, <laughs> I'm, using, I, I'm, I'm, I'm used to people joining the church and then never seeing them again, you know. <laughs> that, that's just a joke. But uh, The Paradas, Angela and Mark Parada, you know. Uh, he, Mark graduated from Penn State and, and uh, was the assistant manager or assistant pro or something at Southwind Country Club for a while, weren't you? So if you play golf, you should know Mark. Is that close? Close. But he's, he's uh, with the uh, um, service master now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Paradas. I told him that their marriage gets better once you join this church. So it's just it's a part of the membership package. You just get a better marriage. Hey, gang, let me uh, summarize uh, where we were, what we did last week, and then we'll, we'll move into new stuff um, uh, from there. But... Um, um, I, I wrote up here a word that, that should be familiar to you. Um, it's the word atonement. Um, and, um, and yet, maybe, maybe a familiar word and, and yet uh, um, pretty uh, hard to define. Maybe a, a word that uh, uh, you might have difficulty understanding. But, uh, and I read you from, this, from John Stott's book, The Cross, about... Um, the, the evangelical world having such a deficient view of, ato- of the atonement. And he said, um, um, uh, the, you have not yet considered the majesty of God. It is when our perception of God and man or of holiness and sin are askew that our understanding of the atonement is bound to be askew also. What, what he's saying is, if, if we've got a wrong view of God's nature and a wrong view of our sin, then our view of the atonement is going to suffer. We're not going to have a rich understanding of the atonement because we don't understand our, the, the, the magnitude of our sin and, the, and the, the nature and the character of God. And so I, I, I then went on to ask you if we had to summarize in one English word uh, what, the, what the nature of God um, would be, that is the word that best summarizes his nature and his character, um, what would that one word be? And I said that the uh, the the uh, the West would immediately use the word love, and I said that that would be wrong. Uh, that that's not it's not a it's it's a it's a word that certainly uh, is descriptive of God, but it's not the word that best summarizes the nature and the character of God. But that the word that best summarizes nature and character is the word holy. And then I I gave you three proofs last week as to why love is not. Um, the best word, and I'm going to give you eight tonight to summarize why holiness is, but the, the three things God has never not once addressed by men or angels or devils or under any circumstances, whether in praise or adoration or petition or as, as love or loving. He's never addressed that way by anybody in the Bible under any circumstances. Is he ever addressed as, uh, as love or, or loving? He's addressed as righteous. He's addressed as holy, but never loving. 
um, and, and um, uh, that, that God revealed himself in names. You remember that? El Shaddai and El Roi and Elohim. And, um, but never does he say, I, the Lord thy God, I'm a loving God. He never says that. Not once do you find that in the Bible. And then the, the other argument that I, I mentioned last week is, is was my favorite. It's from the book of Acts. That the book of Acts being this record of the, early, the church's earliest mo- movements, her, her earliest existence, when she was the purest, when she was in the best shape, the church of Jesus Christ. And, and I said that never was the love of God ever a theme. Never was the love of God ever mentioned in any of the apostolic sermons as recorded in the book of Acts. And then went on to say that never that the word love does not appear in the book of all, book of Acts at all. It never appears. And, and I, and I said to you, uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't preach on the love of God. I'm just saying that the apostles didn't. They never saw that as a need to preach on, on the love of God as their theme. And so what I was trying to do with those three proofs is to, is to point out that that is not the best word. And now I want to give you nine proofs. I think I said eight, but it's nine proofs um, that why the holiness is. Now, do you understand what I'm saying, guys? I'm saying that, 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 you're, that your understanding of who God is is vitally important. It's vitally important because you'll never understand the atonement. But in, and yet, guys, one of the things that I said is that we, we uh, in the evangelical world, I use this word, is that we trifle. We trifle with sin. We trifle with our souls. We trifle over holy things. We trifle with worship. We're triflers. And, and I want to suggest to you that, that much of the, not all, but much of the explanation is because we do not rightly perceive of who God is. Um, you know, I, we make fun of this and I, and I make fun of it on purpose. I mean, I do it with, with every piece of awareness, but that, um, uh, that song that, uh, that I always mention in the systematics class that we'll never sing at this place. Never. Um, the savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why won't you let him? That, that portrays God as, a, or Jesus as a beggar. And then you turn to the book of Revelation and you find him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet we, 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 we sing this mush. No wonder nobody pays him much attention. Um, I, I'm saying, guys, that your understanding of the nature and the character of God influences just about everything in your Christian experience. How you, how you define sin. How you battle sin, how you engage in worship or not engage in worship, your priorities, your all of it, all of it is is influenced by the by the way you conceive of who God is, and that's what Stott's saying. And so when 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 I say, well, how does the English, how does the the, the West summarize him, and and they say love, guys, that's part of the explanation for the for the impotence. Of the Christian church today. That's wrong. It's just wrong. So I've given you three reasons why that's wrong. Let me give you nine. Why the word holy is. Is the right word. Here we go. Number one. Everything that you know about God. Every attribute. Everything that you understand about who he is. Can be modified by the word holy. For instance. Does God have wisdom? Yes. What kind of wisdom? Well, it's holy wisdom. Does God have power? Yes, he is uh, holy power. Uh, does God have love? 
Sure. What kind of love is it? Well, it's holy love. Does God have wrath? Sure. It's holy wrath. But you cannot do that with the word love. For instance, what kind of wrath does God have? Is it loving wrath? Or what kind of wrath does, what kind of love does God have? Does he have wrathful love? No. But he has holy love and he has holy wrath because the only word that will appropriately modify everything that he's ever done or everything that he is, is the word holy. Number two, you can put the word holy in front of everything that God has ever done. What is it that evoked God in Sodom and Gomorrah? Was it his love? No, ladies and gentlemen, it was his holiness. What is it that evoked the the flood? Why did God do this? His holiness. His actions grow out of his love of righteousness and his hatred of sin. By the way, why did God send a Savior? His holiness. His holiness demanded it, ladies and gentlemen. Number three. God is described by Job as the Holy One in Job chapter 6, verse 10. He's described by David as holy is his name in Psalm 111, verse 9. Isaiah describes him as holy in chapter 10, verse 17, and chapter 37, verse 23. Now, the reason I mention that is, let me remind you that Job uh, is described in chapter 1, verse 1, as blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. David, on the other hand, is described as a man after God's own heart. These are two of the godliest men that the Bible ever speaks about, and both of them describe God as holy. When you come to finding the holiest men, I mean, the, 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 the most exemplary men that ever lived and served this Yahweh, how do they describe him? They describe him as holy. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, if you and I, if we were more holy, if no, if we were more godly, we would use that word too. We would be much quicker to use that word than any other word. Fourth, God prefixes in front of everything that he touches or everything with which he is identified the word holy. Does God have a throne? Yes. What kind of throne is it? It's a holy throne. Psalm 47, verse 8. Does God live in a mountain? On a mountain? Yes. A holy mountain. Psalm 48, verse 1. Does God speak? Yes, he speaks in his holiness, Psalm 60, verse 6. Does God take an oath? Yes, in his holiness, Psalm 89, verse 35. Does God have a house? Yes, and holiness is welcome there, Psalm 93, verse 5. Is there a heaven? Yes. What kind of heaven is it? It's a holy heaven, Psalm 20, verse 6. Why? Why is heaven holy? Because God is there. Folks, um, people, places... Things, sacrifices, utensils, houses, they all become holy as soon as God touches it. The, the best example of all of that, of course, is in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses is walking on the backside of a mountain and, uh, you know, he's, he's not in Egypt, he's, uh, he's over there tending sheep and all of a sudden he sees this bush and this bush is burning but it's not being consumed. And he says, well, you know, I need to go take a look at that thing. I mean, it's burning but it's not being consumed. So he walks over there and, and, uh, and not only is the bush burning, but the bush is talking. The bush says, uh, you know, uh, take off your shoes. You know that passage. Why? Why take off these shoes? Because the ground's holy. Why? Why is the ground holy? 
because God is there. Everything that he touches, every place that he goes, everything that he's associated with becomes holy the moment that he's there. Why? Because. Because God is holy. Number five. In the book of Isaiah, God is referred to 31 times as the Holy One of Israel. Now, guys, you need to listen to this. In the book of Leviticus, does everybody know what the book of Leviticus is? The book of Leviticus is a, is a hard book to read. Um, because, you know, you go through Genesis, you got all these wonderful stories, you go through Exodus, you got the, you know, the, the, the Exodus out of Egypt, and it just, things are just really kind of exciting until the last few chapters when they're describing the sanctuary. But then, um, and then you come to Leviticus. And if you're trying to read the Bible through, straight through, I mean, people stop, they get hung up, you know, about chapter four of the book of Leviticus. You know what the book of Leviticus is? It's a manual on worship. Most of what you find in the book of Leviticus is telling you how God expects to be worshipped. When you when you you want to you want to you want to get some instructions about what's acceptable worship, then go to the book of Leviticus. In the book of Isaiah, God is addressed as the Holy One of Israel thirty-one times. In the book of Leviticus, a manual on worship, we find the word holy used eighty-seven times. Referring to utensils, places, things. The word love is found twice in the book of Leviticus. Twice. And on both occasions, it has to do with love your neighbor. But everything that has to do with worship, anything involved in the worship of Yahweh, Is modified by the word holy. You know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, our staff here at Grace of Man, we've had a lot of conversation of late. And if you're, I mean, you know, if you're on the staff, you know this to be true. We've had a lot of conversation about what 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 does Christian normalcy look like? What is it? What is it? I mean, if you're if you're healthy spiritually, what what, what are some of the earmarks or the benchmarks of just healthy spiritual living? Um, we, we're trying to avoid, you know, lists and codes, you know, like check that one off and check that one off and check that one off and you're going to be fine. But, but, but there are a few things, ladies and gentlemen, like service. Service is, is something that's a part of a healthy Christian life. Uh, being involved in some kind of discipleship is, is a, just a part of, you know, just growth and grace. But the thing that, <coughs> that has been much on our minds and much in our conversation, has to do with worship. Worship. Both corporate and personal. Both corporate and private. And you know one of the things that we see around here at Gracie Van is that people dis-worship. They, they come and teach a Sunday school class and go home. Or they go to a Sunday school class and go home. They, they don't, they don't like court. Now, now guys, you know, you could say, well, Jimmy Young is just as, he dries dust and is boring. That may be it. That may be it. But ladies and gentlemen, part of the reason is, is that evangelical church knows very little, if anything, about the holiness of God. We wouldn't trifle with worship if we knew something about God. 
God gives us a manual on how He is to be worshipped. And we blow that off. How do you explain that? I, I don't know how to explain it com- comprehensively. I can simply say that part of the reason, methinks, is because we've got this distorted, mushy God that uh, is not high and lifted up. We, we do have a faulty view of His majesty, which is what Stott said in that book. Eighty-seven times in a discussion of worship, the word holy appears in the book of Leviticus. Number six, how do angels of the Bible address God? <laughs> well, if, if the example of in Isaiah is, is, means anything, Isaiah chapter six, uh, I think it's verse three. Remember, um, uh, Isaiah gets this glimpse of Yahweh in chapter six. It's one of the key chapters in all the Bible, Isaiah chapter six. And what he hears from the, from the presence of God is the, the, the seraphim and they're singing, holy, holy, holy. You know, guys, um, if, if, if that's not enough, you go to the, the New Testament and you come to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8, and um, the angels are still singing. You know what they're singing? The same song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The only attribute in the entire Bible that is raised to the third power is holiness. Uh, there's a couple of places where you see Lord, Lord, or Absalom, Absalom. You know, guys, in, in the Bible, when, when they wanted to make emphasis, they didn't have italicized words and, you know, a different font and, and you know, underlining things. The way they made emphasis is that they repeated things. And so, and when somebody says, Lord, Lord, that's, that's, you know, that, there's some passion in that. He just didn't say Lord. He said, Lord, Lord. And you know, when, when David fights his son and, um, and his son Absalom is killed and he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, the, the, what the Hebrew author is giving you is, is a, is a healthy dose of emphasis. You know, there's a, there's a place in, and I think it's, uh, Genesis 14 where they, they had this war and Abraham's involved and, and part of the people in the war get, get caught in the asphalt pits. <coughs> Remember that? The, the, they call them asphalt pits. But the Hebrew doesn't have the word asphalt in there. It doesn't say that they got caught in the asphalt pits. You know what it says in the Hebrew? They, get caught, they got caught in the pit pit. I mean, this was the pittiest pit that ever existed. I mean, this, of all the pits, this was a pit. This was a pit pit. And that's the only way the, 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 the authors know how to emphasize the fact of the, the, the nature of this pit. It doesn't say it's got tar in it. It says simply it's a pit pit because of emphasis. And so on numerous occasions in the, in the Hebrew and the Greek, you'll find, you'll find emphasis. Lord, Lord. Simon, Simon. My son, my son. But only once. Only one time, ladies and gentlemen. Actually, more than one time, but only one attribute. Only one. Is raised to the third power. What is God? He's holy. No, he's not. He's holy, holy. No, no, no. No, he's not. He's holy, holy, holy. 
What, ladies and gentlemen, do you think the biblical authors are doing? Multiplying words? No, I'll tell you what they're doing. They ran out of words. And the only thing they know to do is to take the one word and emphasize it over and over and over again. The only time, the only attribute of God, no other attribute, is raised to the third power. Let that sink in, ladies and gentlemen. How does Jesus address his father? Well, this is my seventh argument. Um, how does he address the father? Well, he addresses him as holy father in, in John 17, 11. And then in John 17, 25, he addresses him as righteous father, but never. Never does the Lord Jesus ever address Yahweh as loving father. But he does address him as holy father. Number eight. All of Christendom, ladies and gentlemen, uh, believes in a trinity. If you don't believe in the trinity, you're not a Christian. That's just one of the the uh, the uh, the fundamentals of Christian of Christendom, and that is um, the Trinity. We believe in three persons that are equal in power and glory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of those persons is, of course, the Spirit, equal to the Father, equal to the Son. And what is His name? He is the Holy Spirit. God in himself, God in flesh, excuse me, God in, in, in his person, not in flesh, is called the Holy Spirit. Nothing, nothing else. The Trinity is giving you a description of itself. And what word does the Trinity choose? Holy. Here's my ninth and final argument. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn and see this. It's in Proverbs chapter 9. In fact, um, um, you're fixing to get more than you bargained for right now because this is a, a lesson in Hebrew poetry. Um, guys, actually, the word poetry is somewhat misleading. Uh, it's, you know, the, I've told you this before when we started looking at the book of Job. You, you, it, the, the Bible is divided up into, into types of literature. You have the, 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 the Torah, the, the five, five books of Moses, and then you have the historical books. And then you, then you, have, you come to a section called the wisdom literature. It's, it's often called the Hebrew poets. When you, when you go to seminary and you take a course, it's usually entitled the Hebrew poets. But when we say, when I say poets... In this culture, people start thinking of rhyming words like roses are red and violets are blue. I am obnoxious and so are you or, or, something, or something. You know, we think when, when I say poetry, we think like that. Well, that's not what poetry is in Hebrew. Um, it, it, and, and so I, I want to try to get away from that word to call it wisdom literature. I think it's I think it's more accurate, but but anyway, uh, in in Hebrew wisdom literature, the way that the that the poets wrote is that they didn't try to rhyme words. They never did that. They, they didn't try to get something that was phonetically nice to the ear. What they did is they they would they would take us a, a thought, and what they would then do is that they would rhyme it. 
They would rhyme it by repeating it. Not in terms of the, the phonetic sound, but they would restate it. They would restate the same thought in different words. And so it's called, it's called synonymous parallelism, ladies and gentlemen. If you ever want to impress somebody, talk about the synonymous parallelism in wisdom literature. Synonymous parallelism. You, you write something, and then you write something else that's a synonym that's parallel to the, 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 the A part. That's, that's the way the Hebrew poets or Hebrew wisdom literature is written, a lot of it. You see it in the book of Job. In fact, I'm going to say this very same thing Sunday morning. <clears throat> but you see it here in Proverbs chapter 9. Now, do you understand synonymous parallelism? Because you've got to understand that this is synonyms. Uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, that, so Solomon's thinking, okay, um, I, I, need to, I need to rhyme that. I need to say that again. I want to say that all over again. So he says, okay, well... Um, um, uh, I know what uh, I know what I'll talk about when I I know what word I'll use when it comes to wisdom. I'll use insight. I'm I'm, mis, I'm in an ESV. You could have a different word, but the word that he uses. I mean, he's got wisdom down here, so he puts insight right there. Now, in the, in the beginning of the thing, he talks about fear. And he thinks, okay, well, what's the, what's the, what's the right word for fear? And he says, well, okay, I'll use the word knowledge. <laughs> You've got synonymous parallelism. But then he comes to the name Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. So he's, he's got it all straightened out in his mind about the knowledge part and the inside part. But what word am I going to use? What word of all the words available to me in the Hebrew language am I going to use as a synonym for that? No, ladies and gentlemen, in the knowledge of the Holy One. In the mind of this inspired author, the only appropriate synonym for Yahweh is the word the Holy One. You know, guys, why is this, why is this so important? I mean, why, why are you, why are you getting so worked up up there, Dr. Young? I mean, uh, well, <clears throat> just look at this text again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, first of all, guys, you'll never be wise spiritually until you understand what God is really like. In fact, Your worship will suffer. Your service will suffer. Your love for suffer will suffer. Until you come to an understanding of what he's really like. Um, you know, guys, uh, th this is very offensive, but the God that you may be loving at this very moment may not even exist if he's not this God. You, you will not be able to um, to understand the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what 
Stott meant when he talked about the atonement. You will not understand why it was necessary and, and what it means to your souls until you understand that, that God's overwhelming characteristic is his holiness. Guys, I, I hope you'll not misunderstand me. Um, I am not trying to downgrade the love of God. There is nothing our age needs to hear more about than the love of God. But it must be the love of God, not the love of love. And that's what the evangelical church offers in space. Mush. Face this God, ladies and gentlemen. Face him in the book of Revelation. And then talk to me about how the Savior is waiting and can't wait to enter your heart. Talk to me after you've, after you've tried to superimpose that picture on the book of Revelation. When the, the, the Apostle John is crying because nobody can open the seven, uh, the, the seven seals and, the, and one of the angels flies by and says, John, don't, don't cry, don't cry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's coming, he's worthy. And then all of heaven erupts into this paean of praise. Guys, you may reject everything that, that you've heard me say tonight. But I'm convinced that the God that we will all stand before is the God that you just heard about. Two more things and I'm done. First of all, does God have a people? Oh, indeed he does. And what kind of people are they? You guessed it. Holy people. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. First Peter 2, verse 9. God's people are holy because they're, they're God's people. And he's holy. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, if, we, if that holiness has not somehow crept into who we are, then we may not be God's people. I want to read you something. If I've ever read you anything that you need to pay attention to, it's this. I don't even know where I got this. I've, I've made some copies. If you want to take something home and frame it, this is worth framing. I didn't write this. Again, I say, you know, I read for a living. And so I find something and I take a picture of it and I, and I put it in a file and I don't, I, I should write on here maybe. Yeah, it says here, it's a David Wells quote. Um, I know David Wells. That's probably where this did come from. But I, I, I'd just like to ask you to listen as I read you this. This, this is, this is more than profound. The loss of the traditional vision of God as holy is now manifested everywhere in the evangelical world. It is the key to understanding why sin and grace have become such empty terms. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, how is it that 30% of the professing Christian world can be addicted to Internet porn? By the way, I think it's 30% of the men. 
How can that happen? How can it happen? I've got a partial answer. I'm going to read that sentence again. The holiness of God is the key to understanding why sin and grace have become such empty terms. What depth of meaning, P.T. Forsyth asked, can these terms have except in relationship to the holiness of God? How can these terms, sin and grace, have a depth of meaning unless they are related to the holiness of God? Divorced from the holiness of God, sin is merely self-defeating behavior or a breach of etiquette. Divorced from the holiness of God, sin is merely self-defeating behavior or a breach in etiquette. Divorced from the holiness of God, grace is merely empty rhetoric, pious window dressing for the modern technique by which sinners work out their own salvation. I'm going to read that again. It's just, it's just too... Divorced from the holiness of God, grace is merely empty rhetoric. Pious window dressing for the modern technique by which sinners work out their own salvation. Divorced from the holiness of God, our gospel becomes indistinguishable from any of a host of alternative self-help doctrines. Divorced from the holiness of God, our public morality is reduced to little more than an accumulation of trade-offs between competing private interests. Divorced from the holiness of God, our worship becomes mere entertainment. The holiness of God is the very cornerstone of Christian faith, for it is the foundation of reality. Sin is defiance of God's holiness. The cross is the outworking and victory of God's holiness. And faith is the recognition of God's holiness. Knowing that God is holy is therefore the key to knowing life as it truly is. Knowing Christ as He truly is. Knowing why He came. And knowing how life will end. Guys, there's one statement that's found in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13. And it gives you somewhat of a definition of holiness, if you're wondering. It, um, it's somewhat tangential, but it, it, it'll give you the idea. The text goes like this. His eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity. You know what holiness is? It's his inflexible hatred of sin. In his determination to have righteousness reign. That's who he is. 
That's who we belong to. That is the God who found a way to save people like us who are so eager, so ready and prone to trifle with him and with all things relating to him. I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the that the great need of evangelicalism in the 21st century is what you have heard over the last two weeks. That may be high-minded on my part if you say that, yeah, so be it. But to reestablish our understanding of who God is and what he's like, nothing. No program, no tithing, no missions, nothing could be more important. Not evangelism. John Piper said that evangelism is not the key function of the church. Worship is. And our worship can be hollow because we've lost touch with the one who is holy, holy, Our Father, I do pray that you have been rightly represented here tonight. And um, if, if you have not been, would you forgive me and would you stop up the ears of your people? Might they never have heard a word that I said? And might they leave here and very quick and eager to forget everything that I've said? But if it is true, if what I have said is true, would you, would you lodge it in our souls? Never again to take sin lightly. Never again to take worship lightly. Never again to trifle over things eternal. Um, Lord, in the midst of all of the distractions that we have, and there are dozens of them for each of us, would you forever remind us that the God before whom we will one day stand is a God of infinite holiness. And we as your people worship you because you are. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you and good night. If you'd like a copy of, um, of that quote, I've got 20 of them, so you're welcome to them. Mrs. Todd. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you got to read it lots of times. Thanks, man. I'm a, I'm a.